Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And welcome to First Presbyterian Church on this Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, as we come together to prepare ourselves for our Easter journey. Do you remember where we were last year? You were at home, I presume. That's where I was. I was conducting this Ash Wednesday service through a computer screen. And I am so glad to see you all this year mm. because that was one of the most difficult experiences I've ever had leading a service. Now, we had led uh, video services throughout the COVID period, but Ash Wednesday is a service that is really about repentance. It is about coming to know the Lord in a different kind of way and really just bearing our souls in repentance that is turning to him together before him and that's something we need to do together. It's something that we ought not just do alone, but it's something that we ought to do as the body, as the church. And so it is so good to have everyone together for this Ash Wednesday. Even though the freight of, of our worship tonight is somewhat heavy, it's still good to be here with all of you. So if you would please, either in your bulletins or in your pew Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, where we've been spending some time this year, to the fourth chapter, to the 12th and 13th verses. For our Ash Wednesday reading tonight, I'm going back to a passage that, that we have read before in the context of our morning worship, but, but bears a special bit of attention as we go into the season of Lent, this 40-day preparation for Easter. So if you would, looking at the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, beginning in the 12th verse, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we stand before your blinding light, your exposing light this night, as we confront our own sin and we turn to you in repentance, we ask that you would awaken us. We ask that you would encourage us. We ask that you would humble us, but we ask also, O oh Lord, that you would restore us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Just outside of Edgefield, South Carolina, there is a great old country restaurant called Old McDonald's Fish Camp. And it is just an old, it's just an old building next to a pond. And if you ever want anything fried, they will fry it. <laughs> but it is a great place to eat everything from catfish to chicken to fries to hush puppies, whatever it is. But one of the things that they're really famous for are their grits. Now, I realize that we're right on the grit line here in Texas. And maybe that's not something you eat all the time, but grits are, of course, that, that great cornmeal that those of us from the deep south just love. It is one of those staple foods. But, but the grits at Old McDonald's Fish Camp 
were world famous in Edgefield County, South Carolina. And they were wonderful, but they were served piping hot. And I don't mean just piping hot, I mean like napalm hot. They were actually, there was this, this old barrel that was kind of like a vat. And there was a sign on the barrel that said, do not touch grits, extremely hot. Okay, do not touch grits, extremely hot. I'm sure that there, are, there were attorneys who passed through that place at one point. Somebody uh, got a little uncomfortable and they decided to put up that sign for liability reasons. So I went up, I dutifully stood in line. There were people in front of me, people behind me, all of us waiting for our turns at the grit vat. And we, I went up to it, I got my bowl, I took the ladle, I poured the grits into the, into the bowl, and I, I don't know, I was just a little distracted, and I just kind of dribbled some over the side of the bowl. And what did I do reflexively, not wanting to, a single grit to go to waste? I brought it up to my mouth, I stuck up my tongue, and I licked it. And it was like my tongue caught on fire. It was so hot. It burned so much. I was like, ah, right there in the line. And, and, I, and everybody just turned around and looked at me. And the old fellow behind me said, the sign says the grits is hot. <laughs> Bet you won't do that again. <laughs> you know what? He's right. I'm not going to do that again. That was hot and I will never, ever forget it. So that story I hope will make sense in a minute, but why are we here for Ash Wednesday? Why do we come together on the first night of Lent? Why do we impose ashes on one another's foreheads? What's that all about? Well, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent. And the purpose of Ash Wednesday and the purpose of Lent itself is to prepare us for the celebration of the Lord's death and resurrection. And the point of this 40-day journey, this 40-day season, is to remind us not just about what happened at Easter, not just about what happened, but why it is so important for us to know what happened at Easter. Why it is so important that we understand the cross and the, and the empty tomb. Why it is so important for us and for the world. Lent is a season for reflecting and pondering on this question. What did Jesus do? And why do we need him? What did Jesus do and why do we need him? And the purpose of Lent is to remind us of this, that Jesus did what he did and Jesus, and we need to know what he, we need to understand what he did and why we need him because the reality of our sin and the reality of our need for Jesus are intimately tied together. In other words, our sin is real and therefore we need what Jesus did for us. So the purpose of Lent is to remind us of the reality of our sin and our need for Jesus. The ashes, as a function of that teaching, are a symbol of mourning and grief. They remind us of our mortality. They remind us of our humanity, but most of all, they remind us that sin is real and that it affects everyone. You see, sin is like gravity. It affects everyone. Romans chapter 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We need only read a history book or check Twitter or turn on cable news or read a newspaper to see that sin is alive and real in the world. I mean, who would dare to, to disagree that sin is real today? Who would dare to disagree that the reach of sin is broad? Is there anyone among us that can honestly say that, that we have not acted selfishly or at the expense of others, that we have never exploited or neglected the needs of others for our own advantage, that we've never said or done a hurtful thing? Is there anyone among us who can honestly say that we have never rebelled against, ignored, forgotten about, or turned on God? Maybe that we've even tried to just sidestep him or slip past him at some point. Is there any one of us who can say that we have taken God seriously every day of our lives and that we have given God the honor and respect that he deserves? As we look across the world, as we look at what's happening in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, and we honestly say that sin is not alive and thriving in the world right now. God takes sin seriously. And God takes sin seriously because sin is a terminal condition. Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Sin affects our lives in real time, and the ashes that we will use in just a few minutes are a reminder that our sin is real and that it is life-threatening that it threatens our peace, our relationships, our communities, and our families. And right now we are watching how sin even endangers our very existence. And so the ashes that we put upon our foreheads are a reminder of that reality and our need for God's grace. Now in the passage that we've read this evening, the author and the preacher of Hebrews is giving us a warning. The early Christians were under fierce pressure, under tremendous persecution. And they were in the, a danger, they were in danger of turning their backs on their faith. They were suffering for their faith, and they were tired, they were uncomfortable, and they were scared. And so they were beginning to wonder, should we really follow this Jesus? Is it worth it? Should we really bet our lives on him? Or might we be better, might we be safer to turn around and go another way, to compromise? to change our minds, to give up on this. And the author of Hebrews warns them that those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying we don't want to turn away. We don't want to miss out on what God has promised for us. We don't want to miss the gifts or the relationship that he has in store for us because we lose our nerve, because we feel like there's another way, because we seek an alternative, or just because we get scared. And this is a sharp warning. It's painful. And the word of God can cut the people, and, and did cut the people who heard it. It cut them like a sword. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is the truth that we cannot turn away from God. This is the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth hurts even like the stroke of a sword. In this passage, our author compares the truth of God 
the word of God to a blade, to a sword. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6, 17 calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. What is the word of God? It is scripture. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. But scripture is God's inspired word. The word that the, the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, quotes time and time again. The word of God. We have to remember that, that scripture is not just history and wisdom from the past. It is a living, it is living and active, says the author of Hebrews. That means that it's relevant. It means what it says and it says what it means. And we have to remember that this word is not just God's word for the people of Israel or for these early Christians or for your grandparents. This word is for us. It is from God for you, for me. For the people who hear it, empowered by his Holy Spirit. So the word of God is living and active, but it's also sharp. It's sharp. We have to also think about this. It's a sword. It's not just a knife. It's not like a pocket knife that only cuts the surface. It's like a sword that cuts deep. It cuts all the way, he says, to the division of soul and spirit. What does that mean? The division of soul and spirit. Well, the soul, actually, the word soul here is, is the word psyche or psuche. It means that, that, you know, that inner self, that mental state, that, that thing that makes us people, that is separated from God, separated from the spirit of God. In other words, my heart, my mind, my emotions are out of line, even opposed to God's spirit. And the sword of the spirit cuts to that and shows me how far I am from God's spirit. It cuts all the way to the joints and marrow. What does that mean? It cuts not only to the skeleton, but through it, all the way to the marrow. It cuts through that structure or architecture that holds us up and makes us move. You know, what is the skeleton? It's that frame that dictates the shape of the body, just like the framing of a house dictates the shape of the house. You know, what are the values? What are the biases? What are the norms and the cultural foundations, the myths and the realities upon which we build our lives and construct our consciousness? That's the structure, the, the bones, the marrow, the skeleton of our lives. And the word of God cuts through even to that. It cuts all the way. He says to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, when he says the heart, he's not talking about the blood pumping muscle in the middle of your chest. He's talking about our will, the purpose, our reasoning, our decisions and choices. It cuts all the way to that. It's not superficial. It cuts to the core of who we are. It cleaves us all the way to the middle. And there is not a depth or recess of our lives to which the word of God does not cut or expose. He sees it all. No one, nothing is hidden from God's examination when the Lord starts cutting. He's like a medical examiner, a pathologist with a scalpel in an autopsy who's trying to find out what, what the problem is and where it lies. Why this analogy of cutting? Why does he cut? 
I believe that he uses this analogy because the word of God cuts away our pretense and our falsehood. It cuts away all those lies that come around as our culture changes, that make us believe that we're without sin or that we are without need of God's forgiveness. It exposes the deep divisions that we have with God. And it also exposes the broken relationships we have with one another. And it not only pricks the skin, it cuts all the way to the bone, to the soul, and to the will. It cuts all the way to our sin. So the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword that cuts, it pierces, it pricks, it might even hurt. The word of God tells us some uncomfortable, painful truths. It teaches us comfortable and painful truths about our world and about ourselves. The Apostle James likens it to a mirror. Like, the, like a mirror, the Word of God shows us things about ourselves, maybe some things that we don't want to see. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he says, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And if you wake up this morning and see something in the mirror you didn't like, I know I did. The sword is something that reveals that which is deep within. The mirror just shows us what's on the surface, but... The sword cuts all the way in. And the truth of God, when it pierces, sometimes that hurts. You know, recently I was talking to a friend who had given some constructive criticism to one of the people that she supervises at work. It was a very simple and frankly a benign critique of some choices that her colleague had made. But the response that she got back was, ouch, that stings. You ever... Been in that situation where somebody called you on something, somebody revealed something, a mistake you perhaps made, and, and it stung a little bit, it hurt a little bit? Well, sometimes the word of God cuts. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it stings because it tells us things that we don't necessarily want to hear. Now, I know that you're going to find this hard to believe, but believe it or not, every now and then I get a critical email. Maybe a text maybe a phone message, and most of the time it's about some misunderstanding or confusion or church policy disagreement, but other times it is about some pain that I've inflicted. Maybe it's through something I said in a sermon. Maybe it's through something I've written. Maybe it's about something that I've done and very often something that I failed to do. Maybe it's about someone or something that I have neglected and it's brought to my attention and it stings. You know, that criticism, the truth that others can see but we cannot, sometimes that can be painful. But you know, when I get those letters and I get those emails, I have to confess that, that sometimes there are words, there are slashes of truth that really cut to the heart. But they're true. But you know what? There are other words that cut even more deeply, slashes of truth that go even more to the core of who I am and convict me more than any human criticism. Because sometimes I'm cut by the truth of Scripture. I'll be reading along and I'll come to a passage that cuts me to the heart. 
few days ago while I was studying this passage early in the morning, I started making, some, making a list of the words of Scripture that cut me. For example, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality from one person to another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You wicked servant, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Or one that really gets me when I think about the opportunities I've missed and the things I've neglected to do. Do your best to come before winter. Don't put it off. That's just a sampling. Don't worry, there are a lot more that cut me. And maybe you've got your own list. These are just the lines that I brought together the other day. You're going to have a set all your own if you take that same exercise. The, th the thing that I've discovered is that in Scripture there is something for everybody. So what are the verses that sting you? What are the, the signs and the words that call to your attention the things that need to change? What are the verses that cut you when you read them or pierce or sting when you meet them? What are the stories that make you uncomfortable, the passages that convict? And you may be thinking, I don't go to church to, be, to feel guilt. I don't read the Bible to, 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 feel, you know, to feel any kind of pressure. I, I go there for comfort. I go there for 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 solace, for grace. But here's the question I want to ask on that note. Is criticism bad? Is the piercing of the word of God bad? Is it good? Well, is criticism good or bad? Well, both, actually. You know, the pain of sin, I actually believe, is good. It lets you know that you're doing something you should not be doing. Like, for example, licking hot grits off the side of a bowl, leaving your hand on a burner, being careless with something sharp. That burn feeling, that cut feeling, make sure you draw your hand back quickly, pull your face away quickly, be more careful. And it makes you take that danger more seriously. That is the point of pain for sin, it lets us know that we have to take our hand off the burner. We have to take our sin more seriously. The word of God reminds us that we have to take our sin seriously. And if we don't take our sin seriously, then we'll never take grace seriously. And if we do not take grace seriously, then we'll never take our need for a savior seriously. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the gospel has nothing to say to the person who doesn't think he needs it. Now, not all criticism is true. Not all criticism is constructive, even though we like to think it is. Sometimes it's just 
criticism, but sometimes criticism is constructive. The question is, what do you do with the word of God when it cuts you to the core? What do you do with the word of God when it cuts you like a sword? Does the word of God, the truth of God, make you resentful or more obedient? Does it push you away from God or draw you to God? Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Rather than being pushed away by the conviction of Scripture, we need to understand that it is a gift that God has given us to teach us, even if the lesson is painful, even when it cuts us, even when it pricks us, even when it stings us, it wounds us so that we will not do it again. Because while the word of God may sting, may sting while the word of God may cause pain, sin destroys. When we are cut by scripture, when the word of God speaks truth, even that we don't want to hear, it makes us say, ow, I shouldn't have done that. Ow, I shouldn't have said that. Ow, I shouldn't have thought that. Ow, I won't do that again. <laughs> but the words of Scripture, like the ashes that we will shortly be putting on our heads, are a reminder of our sin and a need, and, and a reminder of our need for God's grace. But I also want to say this that those ashes. And the word of God itself are not only there to remind us of our sin and need, because that would leave us only with condemnation. No, they are there to remind us of God's grace. You see, God's words of truth are not words of condemnation, but of conviction. And we need to know the difference. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life and his body on the cross so that we might be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. Jesus Christ did everything that we should have done. And he paid the price for every lousy, selfish sin that we ever did. Every cruel and lousy sin that we ever committed or endured. He lived the life that no human could live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. That every sinner deserves. So that we can know the love of God the Father. The love that God the Father made us to know and so that we could have the destiny that he created us to have. You know, several years ago, my father wrote an entry for his church's Lenten devotional. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, on the cross, Jesus did not atone for most of our sins. He did not suffer death in order to merely smooth out the way for our convenience and working out our own salvation. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't even the down payment on redemption of creation from the grasp of evil. He did it all. He finished the work for our sakes. When Jesus directed his disciples to take up his cross and follow him, the instruction subsumed the promise that the burden would not be too heavy or impossible, but would be light enough for them 
and for us to bear. He made it so for all of us. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves then and now. So the word of God may pierce, it may prick, it may cut, but sin destroys. And therefore, Christ took our sin and its destruction on himself. So again, what are the passages that cut you to the heart, that cut you to the bone, that cut you to the spirit? As we prepare to come forward, as we prepare for a time of confession, I want to remind us that we wear the ashes that we wear to remind ourselves of our great need for the grace of God. At Ash Wednesday, we come together to lament sin and to turn from that sin toward God. That's what repentance means. It means to turn from one direction to the other. But tonight, because of what's going on in the world, we come not only to lament our own personal sin, but to lament the human sin of which we are a part. When I got up this morning, the very first words I read were a notification on my phone. They were a headline from the BBC. They were a quote from a man named Gleb Mazpas, who lives in the city of Kharkiv, Ukraine. Never met him, never heard of him. He was only a headline in this story. But his plea to the rest of the world was this. Please close the skies for missiles and airplanes because they will just bomb the whole city to the ashes. To the ashes. Tonight, we wear a little smudge of ashes on our foreheads to remind ourselves of our own personal brokenness and need for God's grace. But this year, tonight, I also want us to remember the people of Ukraine. And remember that while we wear a little smudge of ashes on our forehead, they are, pile, they are buried under a pile of ashes. And so as we wear those ashes, let it remind us of the catastrophic scale of our human evil and the catastrophic scale and depth of our sin. The psalmist says, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do, who do me violence. My deadly enemies surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. I read that this morning and it seemed very descriptive of the, of the situation of so many people in cities of Ukraine. But there's also something else I read this morning. Psalm 31, verses 21 to 22. The psalmist writes, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. May it be so for the people of Ukraine. I want to ask us this, do we feel the cut of God's word, not only for ourselves, but for God's people 
even in faraway places. Tonight, we wear ashes not only for us, but for them. And in the words of Isaiah, may the Lord grant to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. May it be so. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, as we come together tonight, we are reminded that our human sin is not just measured in the peccadilloes or the, or the misdemeanors that we so often like to mark during this Lenten season. It is marked, our sin is marked by utter catastrophe. As we look around the world right now, we see the pain and the reality and the tragedy of human pride, of greed, of ambition, of recklessness. We also see, Lord, the sin of apathy. We see the sins of of indifference. And we just pray, O God, that by your word you would cut us to the heart, that you would cut to the bone and marrow to the structure of the lies that we live and lies that we believe, to the very choices that we make and to the heart of who we are. Lord, cut away all of that like a cancer and leave only your truth and your light and your power. Lord, help us to take seriously our sin so that we may embrace desperately and joyfully the salvation of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.